This is where we meet, sharing conversations from New Mexico and beyond. I'm Chelsea Reedy, and the show is supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities. On today's show, we speak to Leo Vicente, an enrolled member of the Hikaria Apache Nation, who identifies creatively as a human, an artist, educator, and visual communication designer. Vicente received his Master's of Fine Arts from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago in 2020, where his research focused in visual communication design. He is currently an assistant professor of communication design at Emily Carr University of Art and Design in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. A current exhibition at 516 Arts in Albuquerque called Many Worlds Are Born looks at how the divergent histories of race, conflict, and colonialism in New Mexico inform how we imagine our futures. The exhibition features You Can Almost See Through It by Vicente, a collection of amber types held in wooden cases, each depicting the layers of a scarred tree. Here is Leo Vicente. I um, wanted to uh, recognize that I'm uh, living and working on the uh, traditional homelands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, and also reside on the Semiamu uh, nation here in uh, British Columbia. Um, I also wanted to recognize that uh, the TCA um, operates on the traditional homelands of the Tiwa, the Tewa, the Towa, the Karis, the Zuni, and the Pachian uh, speaking communities. Thank you. Thank you for that. I want to start off by asking you uh, how you describe yourself as an artist and really how your upbringing kind of informs you as an artist as well. I think artist is an interesting term. You know, I think um, I've kind of like navigated around like different, I guess, identifiers for, you know, what my what my identity is. I, I did have a, I guess you could call it like draft on like what I was thinking. Cause I, I touched on so many different things and part of that draft was just kind of, I, you know, like mentioning that I'm, I'm a human, you know, and that I identify as a human and have like those qualities of a human. And I think that was really influential and in just like taking me back to my cultural identity, you know, and where I belong, where my belonging uh, is in New Mexico and yeah, like where, where I'm at now, you know, I'm, I do a lot of things I design and of course I can be called an artist too. I think artists that, um, badge, I guess it, it allows you certain approaches, I guess you would say. So can you give an example of what you mean? Kind of that term. Cause I know exactly what you mean. If we call ourselves an artist or somebody calls you an artist, uh, what it, yeah. What does it allow? Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, getting into those art spaces, you know, getting into the artsy spaces, which that's when, when people think of an artist, it's more like a fine artist, right? Like, so I paint or I'm, I'm a sculptor or uh, maybe printmaking something that would be um, fit into that grouping of, of being an artist. Um, but I also design. So I think there's, that too as well it's like well which you know it grows out of like commercial arts so you know working with images and text um and content and then also how do you form that content and you know whether it's a publication or a brochure or a poster um and i've also been fortunate to kind of work in a lot of different design spaces too as well so um i I think of you know the artistry as as being part of that like creative space and not necessarily like identifying as an artist, but I do work in those spaces sometimes. And I think it's interesting because you you're allowed 
to kind of have different like creative inquiries. Because one thing I think about is everybody's an artist. Everybody has that curiosity and that creativity. Then life unfolds. And in a way, some some folks, it, there's almost a privilege associated with it too, I think. Like being able to, to be that or something. And, and I think about like, how do people find their way into uh, using that term? And can you pinpoint that for yourself? Is there a, a story or, or a moment associated with with feeling like an artist? Yeah, well, I think, you know, when, when you get into those spaces and you work in there, like, you definitely feel like an artist, you know, like, I definitely know when I'm doing like more art based work versus design work, and sometimes they overlap, which is nice. So um, I think that's, uh, you know, something that we kind of like feel as we as we go through you know, the different explorations that we do as creatives. Um, But I do believe that there is like definitely like privileges with being like an artist and a designer and you are allowed into certain spaces and not into other spaces, you know? And so I, I try and be conscious of that, you know, and that it's a, it's something that, you know, like underprivileged people, you know, they don't have like uh, access to that space, you know, and that's, that can be easily looked at in the, in the design realm, right? Like we, we don't have enough, uh, you know, uh, underrepresented communities designing right now. And so um, I think that's something that we have to be conscious of and aware of. And this is something that kind of leads into this next question. You support indigenous cultures through the practice of visual communication design. And I want to break that down a little bit, but starting with that phrase, visual communication design, and like, what does that mean? It's it's kind of like a growing term, you know, like it, it grows out of graphic design and graphic design grows out of like commercial arts. Um, and then there's also communication design. So graphic design, communication design, visual communication design, um, that's kind of like the the degrees that you can get. Like everyone knows what a graphic designer does, which does graphic design. And that's that's pretty, um, you know, straightforward in terms of like how people categorize that. Communication design, it usually includes more like strategy in there. So when we talk about like strategic, um, like operations, like brands or uh, campaigns, like a communication designer would um, fit into that of being like an art director of sorts that they can manage like the system and the, and the, um, the strategy for that. Uh, visual communication design is oftentimes like more specialized. So that would be something that you know, can do the work of an art director, but then can also like go in and do the actual work because they have that specialty. Can you give an example of that? Yeah. So, um, you know, my, my primary like focus is typography. And so, um, I can come into a project and do a campaign, maybe a, a visual identity, uh, for a typographic system. Um, and I can kind of manage that and art direct that, but also if there's like technical things that need to be done, I can actually go in and do that work myself. And I wouldn't need like a designer under me necessarily to do that. So I, I, I have that specialized knowledge to get that work done. How did you find your way to this work? I think it's so cool. It's, it's so interesting. How did you get to this area of focus? Yeah, it's, it's been a long time coming. You know, I, I got my bachelor's of arts in uh, graphic design at Fort Lewis College, and um, I've always had uh, just general interests in the arts and uh, design worlds. And I think um, that was part of what I was navigating in undergrad of like, where am I going to go yeah. with this work? And like, how I'm going to be, um, I guess, how am I going to make a living 
doing this work. You know, I think it was, it was hard to think of like being an artist and making like a living as an artist. Um, and I thought that being a designer would give me more opportunities to like, uh, make a living and while also like feeding that need to like be creative. And, um, you know, fortunately, because, uh, Fort Lewis college is a liberal arts college. Like I had the chance to, to get into both fine arts and design. And so it was, it was just a great program that they run that, um, yeah, I was able to touch on things and, and kind of explore both of those realms. And then once I graduated, I was essentially out in the world, like looking for projects. So I think one of the things that you've uh, done in this design work is develop a typeface to reflect how textual communication is used in your community. Can you talk about that and kind of what that means, what that looks like, um, the importance of it? Yeah, it was, it's really important. Like right now, you know, I think there's growing like, uh, trends to, to be more, um, integrating of like native cultures, like in, in a lot of different levels, you know, me as a designer, like that was one thing when I was going through, uh, the graduate program is that I, um, you know, I was looking at where the, the overlaps, like where, how, how do these elements, like, how are they valued in our communities and how can I use these elements that I'm working with to kind of uh, support that? And so when I was looking in the different design realms, um, you know, one of the just very simple like elements that we work with on a day to day is typography. And I was thinking, you know, that that's kind of like an entry point to where I can look at that and I can look at it critically and I can look at it, uh, in my work of like how, how I'm supporting that and how I'm supporting, uh, communities, um, efforts to support their languages, their indigenous languages. Once you get into the actual like mechanics of it, like there's a lot of, I guess, like specialized work that you can do of like, what is, you know, an orthography and how does that, um, how is that visualized? You know, how do, how do we, um, navigate like adding accents to different like native words or uh, place names. So that was, that was one thing that I really enjoyed about the work is that I could still be very like connected to my research around my tribe. Um, and then also I could develop something new that would support, you know, our tribe's growth. One of the things that both Jacqueline and I found really interesting about reading your work and reading around what you're working on and your research is that um, idea of linguistic imperialism through the implementation of, of the English language and how indigenous peoples have suffered and endured a cultural harm just simply based on language. And... Can we, t can we talk about how language reinforces cultural identity and what it connects us to? How the English language is in itself just like a colonizing uh, force? And then how kind of typography and looking at design kind of comes into that and, and helps push back about that to elevate, let's say, indigenous cultures, indigenous language. I know that's a, a big, huge uh, question. No, it's, it's definitely, uh, it is big. You know, and I think we have to, like you said, we have to look at the historical like past, like what had happened in the past with uh, residential schools and boarding schools and, and forcing individuals that had to go there to speak English, you know, and them being 
punished for speaking their own own language. So that's that's something that's happened across the continent. Then they have this traumatic experience and they don't speak that language, and it further creates that problem to where you know they're uh, following generations. They don't get exposure to that language, and it keeps going on until you get to a point to where you're not hearing that language anymore. That's, you know, sadly, a lot of uh, communities feel that effect. And um, I think uh, what I'm doing in design is helping to kind of support um, language revitalization and language preservation um, and just creating like media or um, different content that can bring that back. There's a whole kind of um ethics in like what that means but i think you know for me as a native designer like i i know that's a possibility for me definitely if there was um like a settler that was trying to do the same work they're going to run into different problems that allows me some i guess like level of privilege to be able to work with my community to to work with other communities and knowing that this is what's you know what the environment is do you do you run into um, let's say some pushback at all or or not? Yeah, I mean you you have to go through you know like hoops you know like any other project like you you can't just like record someone and um, and that's that being like your property you know like the 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 work that you uh, record and that you're you're trying to um, capture like that's intellectual property so you you know you have to get permission to do that and uh and what you do with that content afterwards is very um crucial too as well like you know who is that available to where does that go how is it managed um so there's a lot you have to think about when you're doing a project like that and um even developing a relationship with the community takes very long time you know, it, it has to be very thought out. And, and, a, and a lot of the times it's uh, something that's um, long-term. So it's not just something that like, oh yeah, I want to do a project on this and then I want to incorporate your language and then I'll see you later after. And I, I don't know if I'll see you again. So it has to be something that where you're, you're kind of like vested in the work and that you, um, you have that reciprocal relationship to where you're, you're taking or capturing this work and providing this service, but also um, you're giving back too as well. So one of the things, uh, well, you're doing now, you're teaching. You're teaching uh, things related to visual communication design, communication design. Uh, can you talk about what it's like teaching others about this? I, well, I, I'm an assistant professor at uh, Emily Carr University of Art and Design. I teach uh, communication design. Um, and yeah, no, it's it's great to teach um, young you know, uh, designers and people who come into the program. Um, I just think it's a great, uh, thing to be a part of that tract for someone to kind of be able to expose them to certain concepts and ideas and see where they go with it. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, meaningful for me to, to kind of give them, uh, things to think about and to, to develop like a critical thinking Mm-hmm. Um, so that they can, you know, navigate this space after school. And um, I think there's a lot of things going on in the world that we have to touch on that they're aware of as a designer. Um, so it's really preparing them for, you know, working 
after after the program. Design is everywhere, you know, and I think once you get into the world, like it's it's something that you see like multiple times a day. Like we have, you know, um images and we have text um and designed objects around us everywhere. And so like we can think about like, you know, what what are those like doing, you know, and how how are we looking at those as like kind of case studies of like, well, I can design this or um you know, why would someone choose these design choices um, to put something like this out? Because you can look at the, you know, the typefaces, the imagery, even the objects and the and the vessels that they use to to kind of convey those. And um, yeah, and I think because we're like you said, surrounded by it, it's almost like retraining um, your your eyes to like see in a different way. Yeah, and being able to identify like the elements. So I mean we can see that they have like a certain treatment or, you know, we, we recognize through just like our practice, like how things are produced and then what would go into that production process. What would the materials that be working with? Um, what are the like typeface styles that are chosen? How are they pairing them? Uh, how does get integrated both into like a composition of image and text? Um, and then what that composition is, if it's like, you know, a poster or a print or, um, you know, it could even be something that's environmental. So I was looking at some of the classes I think that you're teaching, well, that you taught in the fall and that you're teaching um, this spring. And I came across this phrase uh, that I found super interesting. I wonder you could tell me about it. How contemporary written communication is responsibly researched. And does that touch on what we're just talking about? Or does is there more kind of more to that? Yeah. I mean, like we, we're kind of like bordering that, like how you know, how do we look at design and how do we research it? You know, I think, yeah. uh, people have an idea that designers like go and, and some designers do like go and just like choose things or like we make choices, right. We jump on the computer, we get into Adobe and we start making choices and that's definitely what you can do. But I think when, when you're working on a project, that's more, um, complex, you know, you have to have, uh, a number of levels of research so that we, you know, you might have like initial research to where you're like scouting out and seeing like what, what is there. And then you might come back afterwards and come in with like secondary or, or tertiary like research that um, it's, it's beneficial for, you know, a lot of, a lot of things. And I think um, part, part of my job, like teaching is, is, is showing students how to research and how, you know, how, like, like we said, like how, when we choose a typeface, like how, how are we looking at that typeface? You know, say we're working for, um, you know, a, a museum that represents like a culture, you know, like yeah. you want to represent that culture to the best. And, and that's one of the really hard things. It's like when you, when you design for a cultural community, um, you run into those problems of like, you know, tropes and like stereotypes and that you don't want to necessarily like play into those, but you want to do something that's like fitting for that community. And so, um, it becomes a really hard thing of like, okay, like, well, how do I pick a typeface that's going to represent like indigenous peoples without like being stereotypical or like playing off of like tropes. Do you have an example of a project that you've worked on that you've had to, um, include what you're talking about, this kind of research element and this consideration? You know, all of the work that I've done with indigenous communities has, has like elements of that. It's like, how do, how do we, um, 
you know, how do we represent um, indigenous communities? And that's, that's kind of been the space I've been navigating for as long as I've been a designer. And so it's like, you know, what, what are, what typefaces are we using? What imagery are we using? You know, how are we presenting ourselves and, um, you know, navigating that representation, but also like, um, um, what's, what's contemporary right now, you know, like what, what, what gives you like a, a feeling that is current and that's not like something like old, right? Like, cause we know how old feels like we can look back into like early tourist days in New Mexico and, and you can, you can kind of like think of like, oh yeah, well, um, you know, I see a lot of geometric like patterning, uh, generalized, um, typography, old, old photos. Mm -hmm. Um, so we already know that that, that was a thing, but, you know, in terms of like now, like what, what does native design look like now? And that's, that's one thing that I, I'm constantly coming back to, you know, I come back to it every day of like, okay, what's, what is it now? You know, like, what, what are we, where are we at now? I know we're talking on the radio, but if you could just, I, um, yeah, what, what is it now? Is that describable in, in language or is it really visual? I think, I think that statement is, is pretty spot on. Like it, it is now, like, I think tomorrow it's going to be different and the day after it's going to be different again. I think, um, you know, we're in, we're in a time where there, like a lot of people have access to these softwares and, um, you know, they're not necessarily like trained, but they, they have that capability of like deciding how they're, you know, how they're looking and how they're, um, coming together in terms of representation. And, um, it can change from day to day. You know, I think, um, that's, that's something that I think of as being like a constant is like the, the constant change of now. I want to shift a little bit now and um, come back around to you as an artist. And um, you have a, a piece or pieces up at 516 Arts in Albuquerque. The, the title is You Can Almost See Through It. And uh, this is a collection of ambrotypes on glass plates that tell the story of culturally modified trees uh, by the Jicaria Apache in northern New Mexico. Can we can we talk about that piece um, and why why you chose that medium? Well, the the ambrotype is a 19th century uh, photographic process, so it was one of the um, you know the formats or mediums that uh, Edward Curtis had used in photographing like Native Americans and Indigenous peoples. I guess um, preserving uh, these. Uh, communities before they went extinct. And so looking back at the 19th century, like this was the photographic medium in uh, popularity. And so when we look at that medium, we can not only look at Edward Curtis, we can look at what was going on historically at that time um, and comparatively. So, you know, you can say, we're what were the Hickory Apache doing at that time in contrast, like what were people in Albuquerque doing at that time or what were people in Washington or abroad doing at that time? So through that medium, you can kind of look at those elements. And I think that was one of the great things that, that the medium offered. Um, when we took on this project, there was a collaboration with the Albuquerque museum photo archives. And, you know, I was, I've looked through the archives like 
more than several times. And there, there was things that I could see and respond to like creatively, but, you know, I think that was one of the things that I really, I really um, just felt it needed to be responded to how I did that was just, I looked at the oldest photos that I could find and the earliest photos were, you know, right around that time of the 19th century. And there were ambrotypes. I just thought it was a, a, a beautiful medium, you know, n- not only that, like that Edward Curtis thing, which that's, that's one thing that I felt I needed to kind of respond to as a designer, because we work with images. And so, um, that idea of representation and how, how you can use that, um, kind of against the, the photographic, you know, practice, like how can, how can we, um, take that medium for our own and, and drive that, um, towards our own narratives and our own, uh, purposes. Can you talk about the significance of the trees portrayed in the photographs? Yeah. So the, the trees are, um, culturally modified or culturally significant trees and they, um, were trees that were harvested for their cambium. Um, and so when you harvest, uh, the cambium, it's, you actually have to take the bark off the tree and there's a thin line, thin lining of cambium that's between the actual wood and the bark. The cambium is something that you can actually uh, take in for like sustenance. Part of the project is that, you know, I, I speculate that at this time where um, we're looking at the late 1900s, uh, the Hickory Apache were going to war uh, with the American government. I, I speculated that during that time that they they had to harvest these trees. And there was one year that I was particularly like looking at and um, it had came into my knowledge through um, a forest service book. So they, they published um, uh, a report on uh, the battle of Sienaguia, which is um, the battle that happened on the West side of uh, Pickery's mountain. And so there, there used to be a trail connecting Pickery's to Pilar, what is now known as Pilar. Mm-hmm. And um, they were being hunted down by uh, the U.S. government. And it was one of the doc- documented by the Forest Service as one of the greatest losses of, of the time uh, by, the, you know, to by the Hickory. So they, you know, the Hickory beat them. And it was one of the greatest losses of the, um, the army at the time. So one of the footnotes in that report it mentioned these like peeled trees. And when I looked further into that, there was a, a large uh, concentration of these trees on the West side of Pickery's mountain. And so I was wondering like, why, why would they um, harvest the trees in like such a, a, a condensed like area. And so there was over 500 peeled tree specimens in that area. And um, I, I kind of, um, like I said, speculated that they were going through like hard times. And, um, the reason that, um, the U S government was hunting them is because they, there was a, uh, a cattle owner outside of Las Vegas, um, that said that, you know, some indigenous groups had stolen and maybe eaten or killed the cattle. Um, so it was, it was really all about like food you know, and, and, um, you know, we can think at that time, like of, of land encroachment and this kind of like growing land base at that time. And, 
them needing to find food. And so that's, um, kind of the story that that's behind those works is like, you know, the, the story that, uh, the trees tell, you know, and the, 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 you can read through the scarring of those trees of like, you know, someone needing to eat and harvest that food for survival. Um, and then the historical like context that they were dealing with at that time. And, um, what, what I presented in the, the gallery was that this is, this is, um, you know, kind of like a living document, the tree, and that it's something that exists outside of colonial frameworks so that you, if you understand what's going on, you know, these, these are still out there, you know, you can go out into Northern New Mexico and see a lot of these trees out there. A special thank you to Leo Vicente for sharing his time and knowledge surrounding design. Vicente's most recent work, you can almost see through it, is part of the Art Meets History, Many Worlds Are Born exhibition at 516 Arts in Albuquerque until May 14th. Where we meet comes from Taos Center for the Arts in Taos, New Mexico, and is supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Producers include Colette LaBeouf, Chelsea Reedy, Alice Morion, Ariana Cubillos-Vogler, and Joshua Aragon. Research and writing by Jacqueline Paul. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. On Where We Meet, we share conversations from New Mexico and beyond. Thanks for listening. Be well. (laughs) 